All right, so go ahead and follow along as I read. I'm actually going to just bump it back a couple of verses and start in verse 13, and I'll read through verse 20. All right, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 13. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Spirit, we thank you for penning these words through Paul about Jesus. What a portrait, Lord. Holy Spirit, please assist us in staring at this portrait until it changes us. Lord, may we see Jesus Christ more clearly at the end of meditating on this passage than we did before we got here. And may that change us from the inside out. We give you this time, we give you our distractions, we give you our texts, we give you our notifications, we give you anything that could get in the way of just sitting and staring at you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So today I have the honor of preaching a passage that I just do not feel worthy to preach. Did you guys hear that? This is so good. It's so deep. This passage paints one of the most glorious portraits of Jesus Christ anywhere. It, it rivals, it, it's up there with Isaiah 53. It, it's up there with John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. It rivals Philippians 2. This passage is just, why does Paul soar to these high heights here? So let, let's dive in. Let's, let's just try and fathom what amazing words we have before us. So Paul here, he's in the middle of thanking God for and interceding on behalf of this church. That the gospel of Jesus, given by the Father, empowered by the Spirit, would do its work in them and through them. 
And so we do well to to reflect on this prayer and reflect on the fact that this gospel that he's been praising God for and interceding on their behalf that the gospel would empower in their life, this word gospel is a political word. And we see this language there in verses 13 and 14. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is a political word. This is a kingdom. This word gospel brings news of a regime change. We are all invited into that regime change. And so Paul, he's just singing praise and thanks to God the Father for making this happen through his beloved Son. And then we see him in verse 15 switch gears. You know, he's been praying to the Father. And he switches gears to describing the Son. This new king. The kingdom of his beloved Son. Jesus is this king. The gospel that's heralding a regime change is heralding news of Jesus as king. We're getting close to Christmas-ish. And how many of you have had a pumpkin something in the last few weeks? Wow, that's a lot less than I would have thought. So during Advent this year, which is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to do a four-week series called Behold. And we're just going to take some time to see how Four of the different characters involved in Jesus' first coming were surprised by, taken aback by, and just had to stop and stare at what God has done. They were called to behold. Look. Sometimes we just need to stop coming up with to-do lists in our Christian life And just step back and behold. Look at what God has done. Today, we have a chance to do that with Jesus, our King. To sit back and look at him. So let's sit back and stare at this cosmic portrait of who Jesus is. And perhaps we will come away with a deeper appreciation for the person who purchased our salvation with his own blood. And so, the passage, verses 15 through 20, some people call it the Christ hymn of Colossians. And some people even venture to speculate that Paul is actually borrowing from an already previously written hymn about Jesus. Maybe he edits it, maybe he he just uses it as is, or maybe he actually writes it himself. We don't know. But it's so lofty that, of course, scholars are going to, you know, make these kinds of speculations. But this hymn, it can be broken up into three sections. And I want you to think of it like it has two acts, like a play. It has two acts, act one and act two, but it also has an intermission. We're going to cover each of those sections. Act one we'll call creation. This portrays Jesus as the creator. Act two, we'll call redemption, where we'll see this creator 
take on another role, Redeemer. And so, Act 1, that's verses 15 and 16. Let's look at those again. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, or more accurately, in him, the Greek word is en, in, for in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So this is act one, creation, Jesus as creator. So Paul has been thanking and praising the Father up to this point, but he wants to talk about the Son. He wants to go deep on the Son, and so to bridge the gap, he begins by giving a description of Jesus' relationship with the Father. He says, He is the image of the invisible God. And so, you know, we are used to thinking of one another as human beings being made in God's image, right? Genesis 1, he made them male and female in in God's image, he made them. And so Paul is, is borrowing that, but he's actually making a more profound statement here. Paul is saying here that, yeah, yeah, we are made in the image of God. Jesus is the image. Jesus is the image of God that we were made in. The Old and New Testaments are clear in in portraying, revealing that God the Father is invisible. And so Jesus being the image of this invisible God, reveals exactly who this invisible God is. John says it in this way, John chapter 1. He says, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. But then he says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So this image uh, concept is revelatory. It's revealing. God is invisible. Jesus makes him visible. One of Jesus' disciples, Philip, he blurted out an honest desire one time. He said, Lord, Jesus, show us the Father and it's enough for us. All we want to see is God the Father. Just Can you show him to us? And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So, who is Jesus in relation to an invisible God? He is God revealed. He is God clearly seen, felt, touched. He is God in human flesh. So that is Jesus' relationship with God. That is how Paul bridges the gap. He's talking about God the Father. He wants to talk about the Son. He connects them. And then what about his relationship with creation? What does he say next? He says, he is the firstborn of all creation. 
What does that mean? And this is important because there are false religions and heresies out there that use this verse and verses like it to say, see, Jesus isn't God. He's the firstborn. He, he was created first, and then, and then he sort of created everything else. He's the firstborn. And you can see their, their temptation to take this verse that way because most of us, when we hear the word firstborn, what do we think of? The first person to come out of the mother's womb. My brother Jordan, he's the oldest. He's the firstborn. But you have to remember that in ancient times, firstborn didn't just mean first in time. It also meant first in rank. And most of the time, you know, this applied to both. You know, these were the inheritors. These were the next ruler of the household. The firstborn is first to be born and also first in rank. But Psalm 89 refers to David as the firstborn. How many of you, you remember the anointing of David? How, how Samuel went to Jesse, his father, and said, bring me all your sons. And Jesse brought him all of his relevant sons, none of which were David. Because David's the youngest. He's out watching the sheep and it doesn't matter where he is. He's, it's not relevant to the conversation. But it turns out that he was the one to receive the anointing. He was God's firstborn. And so, in this case, Paul isn't saying Jesus was the first created being. That can't be. Why? Because we're about to find out in verse 16, that he created everything. He can't be a created being because he created all things. And we'll find out all things means all things. So Paul is saying here that Jesus ranks over all creation. He is the firstborn, the first in rank, the supreme person over all creation. But why does Jesus rank above all creation? It's pretty simple. Right there in verse 16, it says, By him, or more accurately, like I mentioned, in him, all things were created. That's why he's over all creation. He created everything. In him, all things were created, it says. And then, Paul goes on to let us know the extent of what Jesus created. In case we might think there, there are things that will fall outside of the category of all things. He uses two what are called merisms to get his point across. It says, All things were created in him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. A merism uses two opposite points to reveal that every single thing is included in between them. When he says in heaven and on earth, he means everything from heaven to earth. Can you think of one thing, one person, or anything whatsoever that isn't included in heaven on earth Visible and invisible. No. 
I can't. But as we see here, Paul isn't so sure that the Colossians aren't thinking of things. And so he zooms in even further. He zeroes in on these invisible beings. He says, heaven on earth, visible and invisible. And then he modifies invisible. What things, what persons are created that are invisible? He says, here they are. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. These are the spiritual beings. Angels, demons, the powers and principalities of this world. Apparently, this church, the Colossians, struggled with feeling the need in some way to appease these powers, feeling like these powers were over their day-to-day lives. And that was, as far as ancient mindset, that's the norm. The norm in, in the ancient world is that the gods are fighting up there and we need to appease them in order to have a good crop, a good family, blessing and fortune. We need to find out which god I'm making mad and make them happy. And apparently the Colossians are being drawn into this mindset in order to have a peaceful and successful life. And Paul will go on later to to um, declare that Jesus has accomplished absolute victory over these powers. But for now, he just, he starts with the basics. Jesus created these powers. So of course he stands over them. And so once he zeroes in and just takes care of every possible scenario that you're thinking of that Jesus might not have jurisdiction over, he covers all his bases he now caps off his description of Jesus as creator. It says in verse 16 at the end, all things were created, two things, through him and for him. This means that Jesus didn't just create everything. It means that everything finds completion in him. Did you see that? All things were created through him, meaning he created all things. If he wasn't there, nothing would have been created. But all things were also created for him. For him. This means that he isn't just the beginning of creation, the the, the source of creation. He is the goal of creation. So, as 21st century, you know, Westerners, we can't just take Jesus' teachings. We can't just take his example of morality and, and sacrificial love and, and love for neighbor and, and his, his peace and, and, and these things that he preached. We cannot take those things but leave him behind. Paul's saying that's not an option. Why? Because all things were created for him. For him, the person. Jesus, the real person. He is where history is headed. And if you, a 21st century American, if you want to be on the right side of history, which a lot of us do, you better center your life on him. 
And so that concludes Act 1. Jesus as creator. Act 1 of this glorious drama on the identity and work of Christ. He is creator. And now we enter intermission. And it's during intermission that we see Jesus, the creator's priorities. Look at verses 17 through the first part of 18. Paul says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. So Jesus is before all things. So this is talking about both time and rank. Jesus was before everything, time-wise. You look out and you look at anything and everything you can imagine, Jesus was before that. He said it himself. When he was on earth, he was preaching, he said it to his own people, the Jews, and they tried to stone him for it. What did he say? He said, before Abraham was, I am. And then they picked up boulders or, you know, stones big enough to hurt someone and tried to kill him. Why did they try to kill him? Because he was claiming pre-existence. Before their forefather, Abraham, existed. He is. Jesus is before creation. He's been around. He was here before everything. Therefore, he has priority and authority over everything. And so he is before all things. And then he says, Paul says, in him all things hold together. And so this flies in the face of any kind of deistic understanding of God and creation. Which says that maybe God created the world, but then he just kind of walked away. And he left it to function all on its own without his intervention. Whether the intervention is functional and operational or it's personal, God leaves us alone. Paul says that in Christ, all things hold together. And so, you know, we don't want to put our 21st century uh, mindset on Paul here, so I wouldn't automatically go to some sort of scientific reading of this, like Jesus is actively holding atoms together, although I think that could be included here. Hebrews 1 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So it could be that he is holding all things together, literally. But this is also stating that only in Jesus does everything make sense. And that's more practical for us. If everything was created through him and for him, then it only makes sense that he is the key to make sense of things. That in him, all things hold together. The, the ideology, the worldview that has Jesus at the center is the only one that truly makes sense of all that is out there. Whether it's evil or suffering or meaning or a future hope? The worldview that has Jesus at the start and at the, at the end and at the center is the only one in which all things actually cohere. 
That's my opinion. But this intermission, it shows, just like Philippians 2 did it, it shows sort of Jesus' past, present, and future. Jesus' past, we see there in verse 17, he is before all things. His past is that he's always been. His present is that he, like Hebrews says, is upholding the universe by his word. He is holding all things together. But what is his future? And, you know, as the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, of course, he had a choice in the matter. What did he place his very future in? We see it at the start of verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. And this is sort of a a changing of gears, a, a switching directions. We've been talking about the cosmic reality and supremacy of Jesus Christ, and now all of a sudden we're talking about the church. Why is that? It's because this is where he put all of his eggs in a redeemed people. The creator and sustainer of the universe has revealed his priorities redeeming his broken creation into a new creation. And so we see that Act 1 and Act 2 are creation and new creation. He wants to create from sinners who are included in his original creation, he wants to create from them a people redeemed. Can you see the love of Christ on display here? He's the creator. Things went wrong. He could have washed his hands of us humans when we rejected God. But instead, Jesus, the eternal son of the Father, made it his future to rescue and redeem us, to make us his body on earth. Do you see how much dignity that gives you? You, a broken sinner who needed to be redeemed, who were enslaved to your sin. Now you get to be intimately connected to this person. The person in whom, through whom, and for whom all things were made. This beautiful intermission reveals the priorities of Jesus. He is the creator, but he is also committed to being the redeemer. And that leads us beautifully into act two. Let's read the rest of verse 18. It says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So here we see Act 2, new creation, Jesus as Redeemer. In this new creation, the author of creation has written himself into the story. And he's no minor character. He's the main event. He is the beginning. Something God often says about himself in Scripture is that he is the Alpha and the Omega. And if you don't know the Greek alphabet, that is the A to Z. 
He is the beginning and the end. And so Paul ascribes this level of supremacy to Jesus. So the question is, how is he the beginning in regards to this new creation community? In regards to this act two redemption story? And this is where we get the language of firstborn again. It says, he is the firstborn from the dead. Many of you know that while Jesus was, a, was on the earth doing his ministry, he raised several people from the dead. Lazarus, a little, little 12-year-old girl. And many of you also know that throughout church history, there has been many stories of people having been raised from the dead. And um, we're blessed to have Leon with us today. We basically saw that with him. And I didn't know he was going to be here this morning when I put that in here. It's just awesome that God raised him up. And I don't want to, you know, all of a sudden throw a downer in here, but the fact is that all of those people, even the ones Jesus raised from the dead, would eventually die again. Right? Jesus didn't raise Lazarus in order to live forever, at least not then. And so there remained the, the definiteness of death up until Jesus rose. Up until Jesus rose. When Jesus rose, this is resurrection 2.0. When Jesus rose, he would never die again. Isn't that cool? So Jesus, right now, has a body, a physical body, that will never die. And this is where we're all headed. It says, Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. What does that indicate? There's more to follow. Jesus just blazed the trail. He just paved the way. He just opened the door. So he is the first to rise from the dead in this way. He's also the first in rank. You know, his rising from the dead, it says here, clinched him the title of preeminent. It says he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So why does Jesus get to be preeminent? Why does he get to be where history is headed? And we see in the rest of the passage, verses 19 and, through, and 20, it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is fully God. Paul basically repeats this over in chapter 2, verse 9, and says, For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
It's just really hard to explain that away. Jesus is fully God. The fullness. That means fullness. 100%. The Colossians were getting distracted away from Jesus. It's like Paul grabs them by the cheeks and just says, just, would you please just look at him. Look at him. Don't get distracted away from him. Don't get the feeling that you need some other spiritual program to be made whole. No, he's the A to Z. He is where it's at. And look at what God has done through him in verse 20. What Jesus has done opens up reconciliation. It opens the door. It unlocks reconciliation and restoration, not just for anyone who would heed the call, but to all creation. You see that? It says, through him to reconcile to himself all things. And once again, we get this merism, whether on heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, all things. What is God up to? He is renewing all things in Jesus Christ. Does this mean that all people will be saved? No, but it means all people will bow the knee. All people will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. All things will be brought in subjection to him. The goal is for people to do that willingly and to receive the reconciliation that's offered. But did you catch that? At the end, there won't just be a redeemed people. There will be a redeemed creation, a new heaven and a new earth. God is going to not just redeem human beings, he's going to redeem creation itself. That's what he's doing. And he did it by making peace by the blood of his cross. And we've seen the gamut of divinity and humanity here. We see the full-blown divinity, the eternal Son of God, the, the person in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells, who is before all things, created all things, in whom all things hold together. He became flesh. He bled as a result of being crucified on a cross. It doesn't get much more human than that. Gods don't bleed. Humans do. The God-man did. And it was through this ultimate act of evil, of putting Jesus, the only perfect person who ever lived, the only God, putting him to death. That's the ultimate act of evil that's ever happened on the face of the planet. But it was through that act that he made peace. He flipped it on its head. Part of this redemption, part of this new creation is the peace that Jesus made. He made it. He created it. And how did he do it? Through his broken body. He made peace. This is both peace within and peace without. Peace with God and peace with others. God made peace through the blood of Jesus' cross.
And if you didn't catch it already, you know, the, the elephant in the room that exists between Acts 1 and Act 2 is our sin. You know, of course Jesus is glorious in creating the universe. <laughs> That's amazing. But when those he created rejected him, he had a choice to make. Wash his hands of this messed up world or get his hands messy and enter our messed up world. And we find out in the Gospels and in the epistles that, well, it turns out Jesus actually made this decision before the foundation of the world. But Act 2 reveals that he did choose the latter. That he chose to love his messed up creation and to reconcile his messed up creation by suffering for it. Jesus is glorious in having created all things, but he is made even more glorious in redeeming all things. He made you. He knows you. He knows every good thing about you and every not so good thing about you. But he is committed to you nonetheless. And only he has the power and the authority to wipe away every sin you've ever committed. He offers that cleansing freely. All you need to do is look to him. Many of you remember the story of ancient Israel when a bunch of them were, were covered in a plague and God provided the way for them to be healed. It was a, a weird picture, but it was a snake hanging on a stake and all they had to do to be healed was to look at it. Just look at it. You'll be healed. That was a, a picture of what was to come. Jesus crushed the head of the serpent and hung on a stake, taking on the curse for, on himself. And all we need to do is look at him. And then from day one, once you have looked at him whom they have pierced, once you have placed your trust in him, on paper you are clean. You've received the verdict. Not guilty. You're in. You're clean. You're cleansed. You're purified. You're all good. You're justified. But the, one of the most beautiful things about this process, about, about what Jesus provides, isn't just day one not guiltiness. It's day two and three and 5,000 working from the inside out to make you into someone new. To sanctify you. To change you. He's not just committed to cleansing you on paper. He's committed to helping you truly walk in freedom. Truly be free of your sin. Truly be able to love other people without selfishness. Truly be able to bear suffering in a way that won't crush you with bitterness. This is power. This is freedom. He's committed to form you. To form you into a kingdom-minded and a kingdom-effective citizen of heaven. Satan wants you to be benched. He wants to bench you whether it's to reject Jesus altogether or to get distracted away from the kingdom. That's what Satan wants for your life. Those are his plans for you. Jesus has better plans. 
And he has the power to help you walk in freedom toward them. He's committed to you for eternity. This is the gospel. This is, this is the new regime. And it's here. It's already started. It's been inaugurated, as they say, but not consummated yet. This is Jesus. Stare at him. Behold him. Soak him in. He couldn't love you more than he does right at this moment. And he invites you to intimacy with him. If you've tasted that, he wants you to have more. If you haven't tasted that, he wants you to taste it. He wants you to be his body in the world. He's the head. We're the body. We get to carry out his plans We get to love people in his name, and we get to be his bride for eternity. That's the gospel. And the beautiful thing about today in our response time is that we get to observe the embodiment of what he did. Have you ever thought about how both baptism and communion, all that they are is a reenactment? That's all that they are. Baptism represents the person dying, being buried, and rising again. Who did that first? Jesus. He's the firstborn from the dead. It says right here in Colossians, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That's all we're doing. We're reenacting it in communion. We're, we're re-enacting the death of Christ. You see how it's all about him? The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. It's all him. And we have this portrait of him here. So we're going to enter into a response time. Let's pray. Father God, we pray for this time that we could stare at Jesus afresh, that we could reflect and, and confess to him our need for him. Lord Jesus, that you would Bring your spirit into this place so that we might look at you with with unblinded eyes. I pray that you would remove the blinders from all of our eyes that we can see Jesus for who he truly is. The person who loved us enough to bear our sin on his own body and be killed for it. And yet it was proven that that worked because he was raised from the dead. And so we just want to spend this time just glorying in you, Jesus. You are, it's the, the mystery of Christ is, is Jesus in us, the hope of glory. Our only hope is in you. And so we place that there afresh today. In your name, Jesus, amen. So it's going to be a fun response time. First, we're going to spend a couple of songs just worshiping, praising him. And what I want to invite you to do during this time, if you are a believer in Christ, is to come forward and, re- and take the elements of communion and take it back to your seat, but don't yet partake in it until after the second song, and we're going to partake in it together, okay? So we're going to sing a couple songs first. Come and grab communion if, if that's something you feel you can do, having given your life to Jesus. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus... I welcome you to do that this morning. So we're going to start there, and then we're going to move into baptism and other celebrations. But let's start with worship.
Sorry. Also, if you are carrying burdens and you want prayer, uh, Brittany and Jeff are going to be up front uh, available to pray with you.